Well, Christmas is a special time, is it not? You don't need any further proof of that than just to look around at our attendance today. You know, as we were singing those hymns today, I was thinking, boy, I was tempted to re- rethink my sermon, actually, because I thought so many glorious themes were introduced in those hymns that just wish it was Christmas every day. I can preach about those things. But we are focusing our time here on Isaiah 42, and what I've entitled for our Christmas sermon, Christ, Our Christmas Covenant. Let's pray together. Ask God to help us in our time together, okay? Father, we understand that in the Christmas season, Lord, we are surrounded by things, Lord, we are surrounded by gifts and presents and trees and lights and festivities and food. And oftentimes, Lord, if we are not careful, Jesus becomes part of the ornament. But Lord, we know that, in fact, Christmas is all about Jesus. And we celebrate, in essence, Lord, the fact that a Savior has come into the world. And Lord, we want to look at that commission to send the Savior into this world for sinners just like us. Lord, we pray that you would help us now to to see the glorious victory of our Messianic King, to see how it is that Jesus serves his people and what was ordained for him before the foundation of the world. And so, God, we pray, magnify your Son among us. And Lord, let the sun so shine here in this place today that it would dawn on the heart of every person in this room, that no one would walk out the doors of this church unprepared to meet the King. Lord, we pray that you would do a saving work among us, Father, that every person, every man, woman, and child that is within the hearing of my voice and hears the Word of God today, Lord, that you would accomplish your redemption, that Christmas would truly be for them. And so, God, we ask that you would do what we cannot do in all of our speaking, in all of our singing, in all of our preaching, that you would do what only you can do, and that is to save. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified now. Help us and give us a clear word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we tackle this uh, section of of, of the book of Isaiah, and it is so glorious, but I think in order for us to really understand it, we have to kind of understand a little bit about the book of Isaiah itself to remember that Isaiah is written during the time when uh, Israel's captivity is being threatened. First, Assyrian captivity, and then, as history would show, Babylonian captivity. Uh, What happened was that Israel eventually went off into captivity because of its sin, because of its disobedience. It ultimately fell under King Cyrus and the Babylonian Persians, and they were held captive there for many, many years until, of course, uh, the decree was given for their release, for their redemption. But within that captivity, God promises his people to redeem them, to send a servant, to send a redemption, to lead a, cap- a, a, a host of captives out of captivity. 
And what happens is in chapter 41 of Isaiah, we are given a little bit of the backdrop of what's going on here, that although God has made inestimable promises to his people Israel, which is the majority of chapter 41, in chapter 41, beginning in verse 20, we see that actually idolatry is threatening the peace of God's people. It is threatening the very survival of the people so much so that they are left without guidance. They're left without wisdom. They have no seer. They have no prophet. And so, in fact, what ends up happening is that Israel is left with more questions than answers. And that will actually come true in the history of Israel because they will reject God's law, because they will reject God's prophets they will not tolerate the word of God. Even as Jeremiah, a contemporary prophet, will say, they don't want God's prophecy. They want prophets that prophesy smooth things, not righteous things, not biblical things, not things regarding God's judgment. They want things that only speak about peace and prosperity. But you know, this is much the same as the world today. People want a manageable Christ. People want a religion that they can control. They want a religion that is born out of a humanistic spirit. And therefore, the message of Isaiah is as relevant today as it ever was, as it ever was. And the reason why, in addition to that, is because men today are as captive as they have ever been. They're as captive as they have ever been. So, what God does is He promises, therefore, to send His servant. That is what Christmas is all about, after all. It is the coming of the servant. It is the one who comes to give His people light and deliverance. So as the psalmist says in Psalm 37, in His light we see light. Jesus, in essence, fulfills Everything that Israel was to be. Now, remember, there is a play on words going on here in Isaiah. The theology of the servant sort of, <clears throat> sort of goes back and forth between the theology of Israel and the Messiah. Israel and the Messiah. Because later on, he will talk about Israel who is, or he will talk about the, the servant of the Lord who is truly blind. Well, of course, that cannot refer to the Messiah. So, uh, the, the theology of the servant has to be handled very, very cautiously. But there is one thing that is absolutely certain, that Jesus Christ attributed this passage to himself, that he is the servant of the Lord, that he would bring the deliverance that this servant is prophesied about. And the reason why, of course, is because Jesus in the Gospels succeeds where Israel fails. At every point, Jesus is shown to be the true Israel of God. The Israel of God that is filled with the Spirit and is overcoming temptation and is called out of Egypt. All of those passages are meant to point us in the direction that Jesus is, in fact, the true Israel. And unlike Israel, Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly, and he fulfilled his calling perfectly. 
Quickly turn with me to John chapter 17. Because what theologians have pointed out is that Isaiah 42, particularly verse 1, where it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. That that is indicative of the plan that God has always had to redeem a people through a Messiah, through a messianic servant, through Jesus. That's the wonderful thing about being this side of the new covenant, where we have the New Testament. We don't have to guess what Isaiah is talking about. This is gospel Isaiah. (laughs) And... In John chapter 17, I think you have a correlating passage where what was once mysteriously shrouded in prophecy is now redemptively revealed in the Gospels explicitly for us. Look at uh, John 17 verse 1. This is is the divine intertrinitarian conspiracy. This is the Father and the Son getting together, conspiring together together to accomplish a great plan. And listen to the inner consciousness of Jesus because he speaks and he, he, he opens himself up for us so that we can hear what was going on in the consciousness of the Son of God before, this is moments before he went to the cross. And this is what he says. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you have given Him authority over all flesh, that to all who you have given to Him, He may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Watch this. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is a conspiracy of divine glory. Everything that God does, I don't know if you're aware of this yet, everything that God does, He does it for His glory. And the task of the Christian is to bring your life in alignment with the glory of God. That is the difference between having a man-centered worldview or a God-centered worldview. Too many times people think that God is above all concerned about your and my personal interest. My dear friends, God is above all concerned with His personal interest. And it is our great joy and it is our great purpose to come into conformity with that interest. And if you have not done that, then you don't know what the glory of God is all about. And you don't know what your purpose is yet. Because God is, we can say, looking out for number one. As John Piper has taught us, if God didn't, he would be an idolater. God's glory has to be uppermost in God, or he would cease to be God. He has to be about his glory. So, 
Isaiah is essentially an exposition, or he is essentially announcing this redemptive work. And so in this section of Isaiah, God is also announcing the way of salvation. This is the way that he will save man. And three things are pointed out here, what uh, this passage shows us. That is the mission of the servant, the covenant of the servant, and the triumph of the servant. I don't know if you detected that as we were reading. The, the passage just rolled along until we get to a grand crescendo of triumph in the servant, the triumph of God. First, the commission. Look back with me at verses 1 and 4, 1 through 4 of Isaiah 42. It says, my, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. That is, if you would, the microcosm of the whole passage. Verse 1, the whole passage is about the sending of the, of the servant it is about the, the equipping of the servant for the purpose of global redemption. Here, typified as justice. You understand the tyranny of the times that Israel was living in. Wild uh, uh, times that the whole world, I can't imagine the world during this time. Uh, the psalmist declares it to us, Psalm uh, 147, I believe it's verses 19 and 20, he says that God did not reveal his statutes to any other people except for Israel, except for Jacob. And the psalmist says, praise the Lord. He is working out his marvelous plans through the nation of Israel because it is through Israel that the Messiah would come. But this verse tells us several things about Jesus' mission. Unlike Israel, God was fully pleased with him. You see that there? It was, it was the servant is the one in whom God delights. In other words, he would come to do God's will, as the psalmist says in Psalm 45 and in uh, Hebrews 10, verse 7, to obey where Israel failed. And that's why it is said of Jesus in John 6, 27, that God has set his seal on him. What does that mean? It means total approval for total obedience. But there's also here an element of the passive obedience. As you see the things that Christ would suffer, it says he will not cry out or raise his voice. You see that there? He will not... Make his voice heard in the street. Now we know that that passage was quoted by Jesus in his ministry where he refused to reveal his redemptive glory to the religious elite of his time. He wasn't there to gain a political following. And that's why Jesus was content to come humble, in humility, lowly, even mounted on a donkey, a humble king. He didn't come simply to advance the kingdoms of this world. He came to replace them. He didn't come just to fill old wineskins with new wine. He came to burst them open, to do away with them, to replace them. And... God assures that the Son 
Even though he may take on the form of a bruised reed, God would uphold him, even though it would include humility, sacrifice, and crushing. A bruised reed, he says, he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not he, he, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he, was, until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. In other words, the suffering of the servant was redemptive. That was his task. This was the, the, the identity that Jesus assumed in the ministry. However, his ministry included a very unique component a component that runs against the grain of everything that is within us, and that is the component to suffer. Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer? and to enter his kingdom. Everything about Jesus' mission is contrary to what the world expects and what the world wants. Even today, they want a Jesus filled with the spirit of humanism, not the spirit of the living God. Uh, but in the Bible times, it was no different. The Jews wanted an earthly king. You remember John chapter 6? They tried to constrain him by force and make him king. They wanted an earthly king so bad. They, in other words, they wanted temporal deliverance now. And what does the Bible say? Greeks seek wisdom. They want a philosopher. The religious elite of that time, they wanted a, a corrupt politician. They didn't want a righteous priest. So that in John 11, they conspired to kill him. But it's no different today. People want a savior they can define. They want a salvation they can define. One that will bring social justice. One that will bring racial reconciliation. One that will bring political expediency, not for God's heavenly kingdom, but for the worldly system that they so dearly love. The world would gladly welcome a humanistic Christ that is concerned with global warming. But Christ means to heat the world up more than that. <laughs> global warming is fine. Global judgment. And now they don't want that Christ anymore. Christ is concerned with a heavenly kingdom filled with people that are of a transformed heart that, watch this, that love his law. You see that? Verse 4. The coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Now plug in other things there. They will wait expectantly for his love. They will wait expectantly for his joy. They will wait expectantly for his peace. Oh, nothing symbolizes a transformed heart more than the individual whose experience of regeneration is such that you now love the God and love the law of that God that you once opposed. You love his law. It is no longer a burden. 
It is no longer burdensome, as John tells us, but we delight in the law of God because it has been written on our hearts and it has been put into our minds and we love his righteous statutes. And when we don't love them, we're broken over that. This is precisely what the mission of the servant is all about. He was sent to bring forth God's justice through a kingdom of redeemed people from every tribe, even the coastlands. The redeemed wait for him for this very reason. The servant's going to bring God's reign to the furthest places of the world, to the most remote places, until at last, as it says there in verse 3, he will bring forth justice. Do you understand the injustice of this world? Man thinks that he is free. One thing that the mission of the servant shows us is that man is not free. As a matter of fact, he is bound and blind. Look at verse 5 through 9. Because here we move beyond just the commission and now to reveal God's covenant glory through the servant. He says, thus says, the, the God, thus says God the Lord. I thought, you know what, I love that phrase. I knew I was going to botch it because I was going to say, thus says the Lord God, but, and, and I did, as you saw, I just kind of stumbled over that. And I was looking forward to it even, but I still messed it up. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and, and, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. Watch this now, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. That's a remarkable way of phrasing things, is it not? Think about if you were ancient Israel. Now, even before you go to a messianic level, you interpret this literally and immediately as referring to the nation. The nation was to be a covenant. They themselves were to embody God's covenant ambitions. That is so big time, because if you've been here for Hebrews for any length of time, I have repeated the word covenant probably ad infinitum. It's only to stress this, that if you tap into this idea of covenant, you really, 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 really discover the love of God. That what God wants is to dwell with his people in a covenant relationship. It's immense. But he says, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. But we know that Israel failed in this. They did not fulfill their calling, their God-given purpose to go out into the nations, to be a light, a beacon of truth, a, a, a beacon of salvation, a lighthouse of redemption. Instead, they became inward and ultimately idolatrous and apostate. 
And so God sends not the national servant Israel, God sends the messianic servant Jesus. Jesus. Makes no qualms about it. Jesus attributed this passage directly to himself. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18, all the way to 21, he cites this text and he says, this is fulfilled today by his coming. And people marveled at his salvation. They marveled at these words. So much so they say, they, they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded from his lips. That was until he interpreted it. Once Jesus began to interpret the text and show how that he was after his people and that he was out to redeem, even as John 17 says, those that the Father gave him, and he even told them, look, this superficial, surface-level allegiance that you have to me right now, I promise you, Jesus says, you will quote the proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Right? They will mock him on the cross. These people who have this superficial, moralistic, therapeutic Christianity, this, this moralism, this God upstairs theology, the big man upstairs theology. You will, Jesus says, quote to me the proverb, heal yourself, physician. In other words, Moralism is not enough to cause you to persevere in the kingdom. Instead, you will lose your grip. And so, once Jesus began to interpret, guess what they did? They took him to a cliff where they threatened to throw him over. (laughs) Just like that. The people turned on Jesus. Oh, you talk to people about a Jesus that can solve problems. And people want that kind of... Oh, yes, we can solve all sorts of problems because there's all sorts of pain in the world. Psychological pain, emotional pain, racial divides. There are all these political problems, all this family dysfunction. Oh, yes, we want a Jesus who will solve problems. But he gets to define how the problems are solved. Oh, we don't want that kind of Jesus. We want the therapeutic psychologist Jesus. I want want him to sit on the couch or, wait, who sits on the couch? I want him to listen to me while I sit on the couch and just sort of dribble out all of my problems. I don't want a God. This is the way many people were thinking even in the time of Isaiah. They wanted to define what redemption was. Of course, they were in They're headed towards captivity. And Isaiah envisions a time of terrible captivity. But that you know that beyond the literal, historical captivity of Assyria and Babylon, you know now, because you're a student of the New Testament, you know now that that captivity is, is driving and drilling down even deeper to a deeper captivity that touches the very condition of man. We are not free We know that society is not free. On a global scale, are we free? Absolutely not. 
When can we say that we're free? When in the last several decades, two million Christians were killed just in Sudan in the span of 20 years. Two million. And other untold millions of Christians are being persecuted all around the world. See, it doesn't matter. The entire world system is broken. The entire world is in a captivity to its evil systems, whether it's socialism, democracy, or Sharia law. The only thing that will do is to bring the governments under Christ. And when will that happen? By liberating the hearts of people. When we are liberated, we are set free. And our identity is no longer bound up in any earthly system under heaven. We become, as Paul says, citizens of two worlds. The greatest captivity at all is not socialism, it is Satanism. The greatest captivity of all, it is not a captivity of human trafficking. The greatest captivity of all, my dear friends, is the prisons and the cells and the dungeons of our own depraved hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those that are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light, that's Isaiah language, the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Jesus came for this reason, that he would render powerless the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And how does he how does he wield his power? Verse 15 says, Jesus came so that he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, outside of Christ, all you have is fear. And the king of fears is death. And Satan, in some twisted, diabolical way, uses that fear of death to keep you under his tyranny so that your desperate, sinful heart attempts to fulfill as many desires and fleshly lusts as it can before it dies. That's what you see in the culture today. A culture that knows that it's dying. And it's trying to fulfill as many earthly lusts as possible. Man is concerned merely with external results. Whether they are moral, religious, or political, or anything else, psychologists exist because people love to hear that they possess the power to change the things that are most important. Jesus, however, comes to recover the sight of the truly blind, to set us free not from emotional or political or social oppression, in this life, we will always have this. Always. 
It doesn't matter if you get a Democrat. It doesn't matter if you get a Republican. Guess what? If a Republican gets in office, I guarantee you that tomorrow abortions will still be happening, homosexual marriage will still be legal, injustice will still be rampant in the land, and God's law will continue to be scorned. No, this runs completely contrary to what Jesus did. Jesus came to set us free from our deepest, deepest condition, which is the spiritual blindness that we all possess. And where does it all lead? God's triumph. Look with me at Isaiah 42.10. 42.10, because this is what I mean by triumph. We will sing of this. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the earth, from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell in it, let the wilderness, its cities, lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. All of the language in the Old Testament regarding the victory of God over his enemies is attributed to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We have learned that in the book of Hebrews time and time again. He will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ was God's linchpin that he will destroy all of his enemies, and that what we are waiting for right now is nothing more than God's ingathering of all the peoples, of all the peoples. He himself will be a covenant for us. Jesus is the embodiment of all of God's covenant ambitions. In the covenant with Adam, he represents us. In the covenant with Noah, he sustains us and the world. In the covenant with Abraham, he blesses all the families of the earth. In the covenant with Moses, he keeps the law for us and through us. In the covenant with David, he reigns over us and we with him. In the new covenant, he dies for us. The ultimate goal of Christmas is to secure God's glory. That's what, it's, that's, what the, that's what the mission of Jesus, the mission of the servant was all about. And we will sing of this very thing. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. We will sing a new song. Isn't it amazing? The revelator goes back to Isaiah 42. It says, this is how we're going to sing this new song. We're going to talk about the slaughter of the servant. We will sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. That means to, to, to unleash the judgment of God on mankind and on the world. For you were slain. 
and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom. That's exactly what Israel did not have in Isaiah 42. It was a shattered, tethered kingdom that was hanging by a thread. They were led off to Babylon with meat hooks in their, in their nose. Talk about being down in the pits. Talk about feeling like you're a special chosen people at that point. You will be priests to God and you will reign on the earth. Reign on the earth. See, God's ultimate victory is revealed and it is accomplished when this happens. When God takes for himself a holy people in a holy realm through a holy communion bond. This is the true meaning of Christmas. Taking an unholy people from an unholy realm and removing an unholy hostility so that we will, as Isaiah 42.12 says, so that we will give glory to the Lord. It also means, my dear friends, and this is real practical here, that the same hope that God gave Isaiah will be the pattern for us. If we expect, as so many do in this pretending age that we live in, if we expect a gospel that will bring us instantaneous gratification, like your cell phone, like your technology, like your drive through window, like your ATM machine, like your internet connection, if we expect instantaneous results at, you know, uh, fiber optic speed, the Word of Faith movement has built an empire on the backs of people who are enslaved to that kind of thinking. If we think that the gospel will bring us these immediate results, immediate relief from our oppressive surroundings, we will not find it. Our hope is in the victory of our triumphant servant. And how will that happen? It will happen through redeeming a people from an unholy realm. That means expect that this will all be worked out in the context of trouble. Trouble. So, it says back in verse 4, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he establishes justice on the earth. In other words, suffering is anticipated. He will bring us justice, freedom, and peace, yes, but when his victory is done, Later on in Isaiah, the Lord comforts his people with, with this peace in conjunction with his own consummate glory. Look at Isaiah 54.10. For the mountains, well, I can read it to you, 54.10. 
The mountains may be removed, the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. In other words, do you ever feel like the mountains around you are shaking? When the ground beneath your feet is moving and you cannot stabilize it. The family, out of control. The finances, lacking. The children, rebellious. Work, hostile. Environment, culture, antichrist. These mountains may shake beneath our feet, brothers and sisters. But the loving kindness of the Lord will not be removed from us. This is why Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. This is speaking to a little group of people everybody wants to kill. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. See, we better learn the difference between the peace that the world gives and the peace that Christ gives. If your peace is rooted and grounded in doctors and medicine and therapy and government and politics, etc., etc., then you may be completely out of touch with the peace that he gives to us. And this is important because this is the peace that settles us. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. We are living in fearful times. There's no question about that. What's going on right now around the world some of you say, well, you don't have to go any further than my own body to remind me of how unstable, how unpredictable, how uncertain, and how unsure this life is. And yet, this reminds us that Jesus gave us a peace in the midst of these shaking mountains that we can build our life upon. What is the meaning of Christmas? The meaning of Christmas is that the servant of God, Jesus Christ, was sent in order to gather a holy people into a holy place in a holy communion bond. He will never let us go. This is why if you are not in him, you are on shaky ground. You are exposed to the wrath of God. You are exposed, not just to the uncertainty of this life, but to the certainty of judgment in the life to come. And so Christmas is at the same time a time for us as believers to reflect that the babe in the manger, he will not return again as a humble child. He will not come again in lowliness and meekness like a sheep to be slaughtered, but he will return as the lion of the tribe of Judah to rid the world of all of God's enemies. The Lord will go forth like a warrior 
He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. In other words, God will rid the world of all opposition to his glory and to his kingdom. And for us, that's good news because his enemies are our enemies and our greatest enemies, my dear friends, are death, sin, Satan, and everything that will seek to stumble us and to consume our faith. God will do away with these things and the servant of the Lord will triumph. But for those who are not in Christ, this is a warning passage for you. That it may not be the end of the world that does you in. It could be the car accident. It could be the teenager texting on his phone on a two-way street. It could be anything. And therefore, you don't have any security outside of the servant of the Lord. Your greatest ambition in life should be to close with Christ. To be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. This is the meaning of Christmas for us. You know, there's a word. It's called kitsch. You know what that is? I didn't know what that was. Kitsch. It's a funny word, isn't it? The word kitsch just means something like silly little ornaments, poor taste. Things clutter that you will find in people's belongings. You know, sadly... Christmas can become about kitsch, all these trinkets and toys and all this wrapping and, oh, I don't know how you celebrate, but some people's houses are, you know, filled with all sorts of Christmas things and Christmas, and I'm afraid that sometimes Jesus becomes part of the kitsch. He's just an ornament along with all the other ornaments in our Christmas season. Let us celebrate Christmas in remembrance of of Jesus, not as kitsch, not as just part of the celebration, but as the, well, sorry to be corny, but as the reason for the season. (laughs) That's as corny as I'm going to get. I do pray that you will have a glorious time together as families. You gather, you talk about the birth of Christ, what it means. You encourage one another with the victory that he has won for us at the cross and that you would encourage your neighbors to seek refuge in him because he is our triumphant servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that the war, the, the war has been decided, that your servant on the cross made an end of our enemies, that he put them to flight, that he made a public spectacle of them on the cross. And Lord, now that we are in Him, hidden in Him, despite our trials, regardless of what we go through in this life, we can say with Paul, grave, where is your victory? Death, where's your sting? For He has made us more than conquerors. And so, Father, we just pray as we reflect on the victory of God in Christ that we, were, we would see ourselves as victorious in Him and bring our life into alignment with Your glory. 
In Jesus' name, amen.